Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, Episode 50. Tim Christian shares how he started OORR, a cycling apparel brand that uses recycled fabric. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step by step. I'm Philip Belitza, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we talked to Juliana Garaizar with the Houston Angel Network about the process of angel investment. So make sure to check out episode 49 if you want a behind the scenes view of that process. Before we get started, I wanted to highlight one reviewer on iTunes. Strayo wrote, This is a fantastic podcast with a wide range of interviews dealing with product development and startups. Every interview is a goldmine of information. Thank you and please keep up the good work. Hey, thank you, Strayo, and everyone else for taking your time from your day to leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. If you've just joined the podcast and you're getting started, Make sure to check out episode 10, I Have an Idea, Now What? It basically talks about the process of validating your product ideas, where we confirm our audience and test to make sure that it will sell. We also get into what the value of an idea is, why aren't ideas worth much, and the importance of execution and what it does to help us reduce risk and add value. And we also talk about creating prototypes on any budget, using what we have and learning how to make simple conceptual and functional prototypes ourselves. Thanks to everybody that's joined the Product Startup Workshop, our private Facebook group, where we meet and collaborate on ideas, lots of people working on some interesting things. If you haven't checked it out yet already, search for the Product Startup Workshop on Facebook or go to theproductstartup.com slash group and you'll be redirected. So now on today's show. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Philip. Thanks very much for having me, mate. Very uh, grateful for uh, having me on the show. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this because you've got a interesting product. Your company produces odorless gym tops and pro cycling gear made with coffee. To so talk about that, uh, it's um, yeah, it's an interesting way to um, get a uh, a point of difference in a very saturated market, I guess. Yeah, that's about as much as I can <laughs> as I can give you based on that. But um, the coffee was. Um, uh, an idea that came to me when I was going through an in-flight catalogue years and years ago. So I, I eventually dug into my subconscious and, and um, produced the product. You mentioned that you kind of dug into some of the issues that you had before. What made you think that there was a gap in the market? Like you said, the the cycling market seems to be really competitive. I was a casual mountain biker before uh, I had a family. And there's just so much gear out there for cyclists. I mean, and so many companies coming up with their own stuff. It just seems so noisy. I'd be afraid of even entering the market. Why did you say, hey, you know what? I've got this different opinion on it. <laughs> well, you'd be wise uh, to be afraid. Yeah, it, it is very saturated. Um, there's a lot of noise. It's hard to be recognized. Um, I didn't think there'd be any point trying to compete uh, on a level playing field or going against some, some of the major or even the minor players. So um, I think the best way to enter a market like that is to create your own market and your own niche. Um, where I saw a gap or that potential was in environmentally friendly or, some, or products that are 
uh, kinder to the planet than what's currently available. So my main sort of focus is trying to make things better for the planet in some way or another. And to my knowledge, at the time, there was nothing uh, on the market available like that, no, nothing created with recycled materials or more eco-friendly materials. Um, there are a couple of bamboos around, but um, that was kind of it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you would take that take. On the flip side, though, targeting to an audience that is usually more earth conscious, you know, cyclists tend to be the type of people, at least in mountain biking, you have trail days where you come in and fix up the trail and you give back to the environment that gives you that joy. I know there, at least for road cyclists, there are a lot of people that are more conscious about, you know, that's one of the reasons that they commute back and forth to work on a uh, bicycle is because of the, that connection to the earth. Um, so I, you know, that's an interesting tip that, you know, people wouldn't normally think that, hey, you know, the gear that I need to use also has to subscribe to those values. Everything you do has some sort of impact. And, you know, that a lot of the time when you get on your bike, you're trying to escape the city or, you know, get out into the fresh air and out into the, the environment that you love. And it's kind of just taking that extra step, I guess, if you want to contribute to that environment or not damage it as much by by taking that pursuit, then that's where I come in, I guess. How did you go into creating your first product? What was the first product that you made and how did you create that prototype? The first product that I made, yeah, that it, I made lots of mistakes with. It, it's still In the end, it still turned out to be a pretty good product, um, but it was a hard road and I learned a lot along the way. Um, it was just a cycling jersey for men and I made lots and lots of prototypes before basically pulling the trigger on a small production run. And I went through, to make the, pro the first prototype, I went through over a dozen uh, sample runs with different with, with over a dozen uh, manufacturers. So I made lots of prototypes. The trick was finding the right manufacturer and pulling all the pieces together, so pattern making and fabric and all that sort of stuff. Did you have a background in pattern making before you even started this? No, so I, I um, contracted a pattern maker to do that for me. I, don't, I didn't have experience in any of it. So just basically pulling in experts from their given field and briefing them on what my requirements were and then, and then taking the, um, you know, the process, walking through the process with them along the way. So it's kind of an exercise in project management rather than me developing my, my skills. But um, inevitably you learn a lot as you go along about um, each different area. So as I said, you know, I wanted to create an eco-friendly alternative to the, um, the popular products. And to do that, I needed um, decent eco-friendly fabric. So I had to start with the fabric and at the same time try and find a manufacturer that could do a decent job of constructing the garment. Yeah. So yeah, the, the, the first sort of proper journey was, was all about finding the right people and creating a fabric. And creating that fabric was a lot more challenging than I, than I um, had anticipated, actually. So when you first started, you created the pattern first or the fabric first? It was kind of a parallel thing. I did them yeah, in parallel. And when you started looking at manufacturers, now, if people can't tell, you're over in Australia. So <laughs> I imagine you're looking at manufacturers that were over in the Asia part of the world. Is that right? I looked everywhere, man. I looked. Um, I, tried, I started in Australia because um, the initial vision I had for the business was to do everything in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, Australia used to be really very self-sufficient. I, I guess a lot of countries were the same. And the, the global trend is sort of everything's going into Asia. I, there were there were a few sort of small manufacturers left in Australia, but um, none of them could do what I needed them to do. So 
I ended up searching further. I went to New Zealand, Fiji. Uh, I went to America and China and India. That was oh, I went to Vietnam. So I, I looked at at all these different um, manufacturing hubs, and I, I settled in China for the garment construction and in New Zealand for the fabric construction. But the yarn to make the fabric was from the USA. So the yarn went from the USA to New Zealand, the fabric was made, and then fabric was shipped to China, and China constructed the garments. That's really complicated. What's the reason for staying in the US for, for the yarn? It had to be recycled yarn, and there's a company in um, the US called Unify who make recycled plastic yarn, or it's, poly it's polyester. If you don't already know, polyester is basically just plastic. It's PET plastic, and PET can be broken down and recycled an infinite number of times if it's high quality without any degradation in, in quality um, each time. So basically, I knew that I could create an identical fabric from recycled materials that I could create with virgin materials, and I didn't see any point in creating fabric with virgin materials when, when the other option was available. So going back to your question, the, basically, the industry standard in recycled polyester is made by that company, Unified, which is based in America. Yeah, I wanted to have the best, you know, the most well-recognized and certified recycled polyester. And it seems like after making this whole journey throughout the world, this, you know, the, the trip that this yarn takes, your cost might not be any different. They might actually be more than just purchasing virgin materials. Is that right? Oh, the cost is definitely higher. Yeah, whether you whether it travels or whether it doesn't travel, it's it's still higher because it's unfortunately it's it's made in lower quantities and there's less demand for it. Right. So um, eventually, that that um, change the amount of manufacturing processes that go into make virgin polyester are far outweigh the amount of manufacturing processes that go into making recycled polyester. There's nine processes that go into making the, the virgin polyester from starting from digging the oil out of the ground. Um, and recycled polyester, it's, you're starting from the, the plastic bottles that have already been turned into PET. So most of it's already been done. There's only sort of three steps left. In a way, it's just a matter of time until the recycled material that you're using now ends up being cheaper because oil and gas is just going to continue to increase in price in the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah, exactly. And and my hope is that um, with education, people realize you can get an identical product um, with recycled materials, that um, there'll be more demand for that as well. So I noticed that your pricing compared to some U.S. pricing is a bit higher than what we're used to here. Have you confirmed that people are willing to pay a little bit more to get that recycled material into, for something that's more eco-friendly and in line with their values? It's hard to price across the global market because of uh, currency fluctuation. Sure. Um, but um, the intention of the price is to pitch it um, just below the, the sort of the high-end products that are available in the US, um, you know, the, the, the wrappers and the, the ASOS and Castelli and that sort of stuff. So the intention is that it's, it's cheaper than those products. And um, if you read any of the reviews done by the, the experts, they actually um, believe the product is at least as good as those brands. So my intent is to offer a viable alternative that's more eco-friendly um, to, those, to those premium products. So something that's just as good, but better for the earth and cheaper. So let's pick up your story where you left off. You were working with, you said, about 12 manufacturers or so to come up with that ideal prototype. How did you get that from that point to placing an order for your larger manufacturing run? Like, what did you do to validate that there's enough demand in the market, and maybe even get some pre-orders to make sure that it it worked? 
Well, that's the thing. That, that was one of the mistakes I made the first time around, actually. So the first time around, I just it was it was more of a leap of faith. You know, I believed in the product, and I'd gone down the path, and I, I, there was nothing stopping me. I was going to do it regardless. So I just got it out there. I started promoting my website. I had a few sales, not not a lot. You know, enough to sort of keep me interested, but not really enough to turn a profit or to recover the cost. So I reset and I started again. I basically went back to the drawing board. I did, I did it all over again. I changed the model. That's when I started producing the coffee garments that you're talking about now. So the first ones didn't have the coffee in them, and they were completely different in in every way. And and the the fabric is now no longer made in. New Zealand, it's all made in Asia. So the other problem that I had with getting yarn from America, sending it to New Zealand and then sending the fabric to China was the, the carbon footprint of the fabric um, and the carbon footprint of the, the garments themselves. After flying it, you know, shipping things all over the world, it was almost defeating the purpose of trying to make something more eco-friendly. So, yeah, I, I decided to try and centralise everything to not only cut down on cost but also cut down on the carbon emissions of getting everything into the the factory and so I started looking at that and I also thought pre-sales might be a good idea and, and market proof might be a good idea as well so the best model for that in, in my opinion was to go to Kickstarter to prove the product. Yeah and that's interesting because a lot of times people will start with the Kickstarter but they might not have a large enough audience and sometimes the Kickstarter doesn't fund all the way because they don't get that push that they expected. Yep. What type of audience did you have coming into it? How big was your audience and how has your Kickstarter done? I see that you've been able to pre-sell a fair bit of product, yep. you know, almost 300 pieces, I think. Um, yeah, there were 179 backers, Okay, but most of those backers pledged for more than one garment. So I'm still waiting on the final numbers to come in because it was only uh, basically December when the Kickstarter wrapped up and, and pe- people um, <laughs> take their time getting the uh, the survey results back to you. But um, sure. yeah, there'd, there'd be over 300, well over 300 garments to, to make from there. The audience, that's, that's a, a warning for anyone uh, who is considering going to Kickstarter. Kickstarter basically don't promote your product or your uh, video or your campaign at all. All they are really is just a platform for you to host your own show. So if you don't have your own traffic, if you can't draw your own traffic to your Kickstarter page, Kickstarter certainly aren't going to be doing it for you. Right. Uh, I know you know that, but um, the listeners may not know that. So that was something that I was made aware of before I started. It sounds like something simple, but yeah, d- don't just go go to Kickstarter with a great idea and think that um, it's going to go gangbusters because it won't unless you make it happen and, and get your own traffic going there. Initially, I had a, a small audience of my previous customers from the initial product, and they're all committed fans, basically, of, of the, the brand, Just a really nice thing to have. They helped promote the Kickstarter for me. And also I ran some Facebook marketing campaigns and had some influencers pointing towards the campaign as well. So probably the, the most powerful thing that I did was I ran a, a competition. I ran a few competitions, but um, one of them was a, a Facebook competition to encourage people to sign up with their email address. So I built my email list um, prior to launching the Kickstarter campaign. And that was probably the best driver of traffic towards the um, the campaign itself, and it also got people on the radar to, to sort of learn about the a bit about the product before the campaign was even launched. Yeah, yeah. So talk about that a little bit. I think people struggle with creating a list because it's just so hard to get traffic on anything now. There's so many competing products on the market, and so yep. much noise out there, and it's really hard to stand apart. Um, so it feels like you have to spam all your friends and family to get yep. that initial hit. 
And even then, sometimes people, you know, so that, and in a way that works sometimes because people that know you best are the ones that are going to believe in you the most. Um, yeah. But uh, it's also hard to kind of get that traction. Were there any any tips you can share to help create that list for pre-launch? Yeah, sure. Friends and family are great at, at helping and spreading, and, and lots of people, lots of your friends will share for you and that sort of thing. But it's I don't I was never that comfortable in trying to push something on on my friends and family. So. Right. I did do it, but it was very gentle approach. Basically, just said, "Hey, you know, this is what I've done. You know, check it out if you think it's cool, and you know, I'd really appreciate you passing it on." And that's just basically as deep as it went for the the list building. Um, there's a really cool tool in Facebook advertising that um, you can capture leads. Uh, they have a lead generation form where you capture the lead or the email address from Facebook itself, so they don't have to click a link and go out of Facebook uh, a lead generation or a lead gathering page. It's literally a, a little pop-up that, that, they, that happens when they click on your, your advert and they can just put their email address in and hit send and they're done. They still, and, they, and they can keep scrolling down their, their newsfeed or, or wherever they found the, the um, advert. So that was how I did it. But the, getting people to, to open it in the first place or, or put their email address in, that's the, that's the tricky part. Um, and you basically have to offer value to the, to the person. Why are they going to put their email address in? What's in it for them? So uh, if there's no value there, they're not going to do it, basically. There needs to be something in it for them. For a product business, the best way to do that is to offer free product. Run a competition, uh, you, know, you, you, you know, get in the draw to win. So get notified about this cool new product that we're launching, and you're going the chance to win one of these products that are going to be produced and be a, you know, one of the first people in the world to, to get this product for free. Yeah, that's how I did it. I just offered free stuff. You know, and that's a, a huge cost and for some products, maybe especially for yours. Do you thought that was worth it then? It was, I guess, cheaper to do that than paying for paid ads, which I guess you did anyway through the Facebook leads platform, like, like you mentioned. Yeah, the, the, the paid ads were, um, were, were a cost. Um, the, the offering the product wasn't a huge cost because it's a, you know, you, you go in a draw to win. So you only have to, to offer one product, essentially. Uh, not everybody signing up gets a free product. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, yeah, that that would that could be out of control. I would, I'd be scared to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me how you were able to hone in on your audience. I guess because your audience is very specific, you were offering it for cyclists. Um, with Facebook, you're able to do this, some really fine targeting with that. I know, yeah. for example, with a product startup audience, my audience is just crazy broad. And so I have a really hard time yeah. doing anything that with targeted ads, because I've got inventors that listen and small business owners that listen, some of them listen to podcasts, some watch Shark Tank. And if you try to create yep. this all-encompassing audience in Facebook, your yep. cost per click is just going to be insane. You're going to be paying way too much money and not the right people are going to be seeing your ad. That's a hard one. For me, it's a lot easier than it is for you, I'd imagine, just, just trying to um, get my head around your audience as well. For me, I can really drill down and get very specific, um, so it gets easier. The trick is just still trying to get noticed in that in that market. Mm -hmm. But um, for you, there's probably a few strategies. The, the tools that are available in Facebook are quite powerful. One of the things that would be that spring to mind that would be really powerful for, for, for you would be dependent on your email list already or your current followers. So you can do lookalike audiences. Yep. Have you? Yep, you know those. Yeah, so you do like a 1% a lookalike audience. If it's the United States you're targeting, for example, um, a 1% lookalike audience would be between 1 and 3 million. And that's a pretty good size to, to market to. But the 1 million size is sort of is, is a good size. 
So if, if you've already got the list and there's over a thousand people on the list, um, then the lookalike targeting gets pretty good. Facebook algorithm works really well, and you get a, a you find you get a pretty good lead generation rate out of that lookalike audience. And then as you build that your own leads, then the lookalike audience can be redone, and you go again. Yeah, so, get more focused as you go. That's quite a good way to do it. If you if you already have the audience, if you don't have the audience, then you have to get pretty uh, pretty clever about it, I guess. I've done that a little bit. I've experimented with the lookalike audience, and it could be, uh, you know, I think some of the people that listen to the podcast aren't always necessarily the ones that sign up for the newsletter. So if you're listening yep. to this, please sign up to the newsletter, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll get a lot of valuable input and a lot of you know weekly tips. No, that's a very good point. And so, congrats on being able to narrow that down for your group. And being able to have that, those really targeted ads, I know that Facebook leads platform is nice because they don't have that additional click they need to make, like you said. And yep. you, even foregoing that additional landing page that people have to land on to fill out their email address, yep. just that one step means huge yep. conversions because I've done it the other way around where I was driving it to landing pages back before the lead ads came out. And yep. you lost you know, 30, 50% of the people just through that one click. Yep, they just lose interest and yep. go somewhere else. Yep. You know, I noticed that you've got a lot of athletes that have received review copies of your merchandise and they've put up some favorable reviews. Yep. I know a lot of the other people that have been on the show here have used influencers before to help them with their marketing. Um, can you yep. talk a little bit about that? How was your strategy in, in getting that going? I didn't have a specific strategy. I had a few sort of things running. I was building my Twitter profile at the same time. And um, a few of the contacts were made on Twitter. So I noticed that an athlete would follow me on Twitter or follow the brand on Twitter. So I kept a close eye on that. And if an athlete that I knew were, um, or an appropriate athlete would follow the brand on Twitter, I'd send them a, a direct message, a personal message and say, you know, hey, wow, you know, like I'm really flattered and humbled that you like the brand and whatever and um, just start a conversation with them and, and um, generally – if they didn't have contractual obligations to to wear a certain type of apparel, then um, they were they were pretty stoked to get free stuff from me. So that's kind of how I did it on Twitter. There was another app that I used on my iPad. It's only available on Apple devices called Brand Snob. So Brand Snob, you basically put your profile up. There's a few of them around that are similar. In fact, I just signed up to another one last night, which I can look up for you. Brand Snob's a really easy platform. It's it's kind of like um, Tinder. Tinder, yes, that's the one I was trying to think of. Not that I know what that is, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out there. I don't know what Tinder <laughs> is. I'm I'm a happily married man. Yeah, Brand Snob is um, Brand Snob is very similar to Tinder. It's like swipe left, swipe right, um, and and that can help you get in touch with influencers as well. And just targeting people that you think might be sympathetic to your cause um, or think might be interested in your product. So if if you follow someone or you find someone uh, interesting or you know someone's a thought leader in your field, then there's another. I guess you can always try approaching them gently. LinkedIn, and if you have a a strong enough story and a gentle enough approach and a friendly enough attitude, I guess, you can get some traction by approaching them on LinkedIn as well. But um, I generally don't do that unless I'm sort of really keen um, because people don't like being randomly hit up on, on LinkedIn um, right. for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. They probably get it all the time, I'd say. So, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not yeah. like Twitter where Twitter, you'll have random people you've never heard of just sending you DMs. Yeah. With LinkedIn, it's like you want to be added to my network and I don't even – I've never met you before. Basically, they know that you're just trying to sell them something. So Right. 
It's all about being a bit clever with your approach. So a lot of influencers, especially if they're at the celebrity level, want something in return in addition to free product. And I think, at least from what I've seen, the influencers that are at the early and middle stage of their influencer careers, right, where they might be semi-celebrity status or less than celebrity status, they might only have, let's say, 100,000 followers or something like yep. that. They're yep. way more inclined to get, you know, to produce a review in exchange for product. And it, they probably would even, from what I've seen again, have better returns on your investment because they have a better connection to their people than some of these mega stars that you would think, you know, that some, some popular celebrity in your space who has 5 million followers, if they just mention you once, that yeah. might not really work as much or as well as uh, some of these smaller level influencers that are easier to even approach. Definitely. Definitely. I, I'd agree hundred percent with everything you just said. Yep. Um, I found that the, the people with, yeah, I guess if you're going to use 100,000, the, the people with less than 100,000 followers had much higher engagement levels. Mm -hmm. I think at that point, it, it's very hard for them to stay engaged with their audience because it just gets, it probably gets too much for them going beyond 100,000. But the, the people in that, in that space, they're, they're still very engaged with their, with their audience. So they, they respond to people when they write to them on Instagram, for example. They, they respond and they, they'll, they'll give a good story about each post that they put up and just generally more engaged with the audience. And, and that's when people feel like they know the person, whether they know them or not, then that's basically what makes people more comfortable with listening to them and, and um, you know, taking their advice and basically buying product based on, on their um, recommendation. If they don't feel like they really know them or in touch with them, then it's a little harder to, to get that conversion. Yeah. yeah, and that's interesting. Last one, we left your product development story here. You'd launch your Kickstarter. Were there any parallels to that with creating this connection with your backers that you've thought were really helpful or that helped your campaign? Was there any techniques that you use, maybe certain types of video, certain types of ways of connecting with your audience that really helped to, you know, get some of that response that you were looking for? You know, for example, some guests that, that have been on the show have said that the lifestyle video that shows the product in use has fared a lot better than the making of video, which used to be a really popular way, you know, the behind the scenes, how this is made is now yep. maybe second in popularity to... Uh, you know, show me a, a one-minute cut of the the various ways of using this product. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I only made one video because uh, I had very limited budget, and it was just the Kickstarter video. So three minutes of you know what I've done and why it's different, pretty much. And within that video, there were various lifestyle shots, and there was a, like an interview-style shot of me talking to the camera, sort of telling people about what I'd done and and why I thought it was a good thing and and um, why I needed your help. So that was kind of the only, I don't really have um, a comparison, any anything to sort of uh, cross reference that with or, or say that one was better than the other, unfortunately. But um, I, I do believe that, yeah, the product, showing the product in use as opposed to being made is, is more powerful. But uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't moved on to that, um, those videos or anything yet. <laughs> Fair enough. Were there any lessons that you've learned that you can pass on to other people about the Kickstarter campaign that, um, you know, that were really helpful for you to kind of close those last minute deals? Or did you find that you had uh, a surge of funding towards the end or in the beginning? Or was it pretty even along the way? Or did you have to tweak anything you know, along your campaign to kind of get more performance out of it? Yeah, it's, it's a long road. Um, my, my campaign was 30 days. I think that's about average. It's, you know, maybe on the lower side of average for the length of a campaign. But it seems like it goes on forever. And that's from your side, from the the other side, 30 days may seem short or short enough. 
if it goes too long, it's kind of hard to, to keep the excitement keep it interesting. What's really good about running a Kickstarter campaign is is the sense of urgency that you that it creates. And that sense of urgency, the, the fact that it's got a finite period means that people have to act now or they're going to miss out on the offer. If without that urgency, then people just don't act um, or there's a lot less incentive for them to act. They can do it later if they, if they, if they want to. They don't have to make a decision now. So that's the benefit of running a Kickstarter campaign. You mentioned having a sense of urgency. And I've also heard other people say that as well in terms of how they structure the product pricing for their Kickstarter. Like they're trying to make some of these rewards yep. to be enticing enough to where you know that, that this company isn't going to produce anything at that price level again. And so you need to jump on it now because it's, uh, you know, it's at least 30% off or whatever that is, the retail price. Uh, did you find that to be true? Yes. Yeah, I found once the early bird pricing was gone, there was a lot less interest in the product uptake or the, the mm. yeah, but there was a lot less people going for the product. So uh, I've seen a, a few uh, successful campaigns where there were a few different uh, tiers of early bird pricing, so maybe three different levels, as opposed to just early birds and then full price, or early birds and then Kickstarter full price, um, right. which should still be a discount to the retail price. So, yeah, maybe having two tiers of early birds, like a super early bird, an early bird, and then the Kickstarter price, and making it very clear that the Kickstarter price is still a, you know, a solid discount from the end uh, retail price. That would probably be uh, my recommendation. I did notice that the initial interest is always the biggest hit in the first sort of 48 hours, 48 to 72 hours, and then it tapers off quite a lot from there. And that's just due to the fact that you've, you've built up all this hype around your product launch, and you've got all these fans, all, all these people that are, are you know, really interested in your product, and they've already decided that they want to buy it um, or contribute to your project before you even launch it. So you've, you've sent all your all of your email list and all of your Facebook followers and your Twitter followers and everything to the campaign as soon as you launch it, and they've all gone, yep, I'll, I'll have it, and they're done. So once that initial surge is gone after the first 48 hours, you've got to try and find ways to keep the interest going and, and um, keep the campaign ticking along. And that's why it sort of surges and then sort of plateaus. But sort of, you don't really want to run a two-day campaign. Um, right. and it did, yeah, it did. Um, so after the first two days in my campaign from memory, I think we got through about $12,000 or something like that. And uh, after 30 days, uh, it finished at about $43,000. So there was still a long way to go after that first couple of days, but it was definitely the, the fastest um, earning period. And the way to, to continue the interest was um, I had a, a number of um, Twitter campaigns with some businesses that had followers in that space. And um, I ran marketing campaigns on Facebook and then I had different influencers pushing the product on their through their um, channels at various points throughout the campaign as well. So each sort of one had its own little surge as as it went along, and and, and then basically once a week I'd, I'd I'd hit my email list again and just sort of say you know give them an update and and say hey can you go out there and push? No, that's great great advice. So I know when we first talked. To, for you to come on the show, you had just finished wrapping up the campaign uh, and you needed some um, much-deserved R&R. So now you're going to be fulfilling some of those orders. Are you going to be fulfilling them yourself or do you have some third-party fulfillment lined up? I've got third-party fulfillment lined up. I'm trying to build a business 
that is, for want of a better word, as automated as possible. I, I don't want to just ha have robots um, or, you know, a, a fully automated process because I, I don't want to lose touch with the, the customer. But, you know, at the moment as a, as a sole trader, I want to keep the man hours as low as possible so it's manageable. Especially with your full-time day job. Yeah, that's right. So if I can have the orders come in and automatically go to the fulfillment warehouse where the product gets picked and packed and shipped without me having to actually do anything, then that's kind of the plan. So that's what I'm setting up at the moment. But having said that, I don't want to lose contact or um, I don't want to lose the touch point with the customer. So I still need to add personalization in there. Um, for the, the way I'm doing it, um, it's still um, not set in stone because I'm waiting for those last um, few backers to come in and, and finish, fill out their survey in backer kit to tell me what they want and where they live and um, all that sort of thing. So once I have all of the details, I'll know the strategy that I'm going to take. There's a few sort of big shipment fulfillment businesses that I can use to handle everything, but I probably won't take that strategy. I've got a few contacts that do fulfillment in the United States and in the UK and in Australia, and I think I'll probably send them all all to separate businesses within those countries because they're the, th the three main centers for my customers, where, where the customers come from. Right. Yeah, so I'll have them packed in China in the, in the factory where they're made and then um, shipped in bulk to the countries that they, were, they need to go to and then fulfilled those the smaller fulfillment uh, warehouses. Talk a little bit about your strategy for how many units you're going to buy in the beginning. As you mentioned that you sold about 300 through your crowdfunding campaign, um, yeah. but that might not be that that break even point that you need to, you know, for a large enough order for the manufacturer to start the work. And I'm sure you'd want to sell some through your e-commerce site as well. So talk a little bit about your sizing for the first order and what you're basing it on. So the, the Kickstarter campaign was to allow me to de develop or pr produce the, the coffee fabric that um, I wanted to produce for the garments. I have made the coffee fabric for the prototype garments, but it was in a trial a trial fabric production, which is a very small run. It was only, you know, sort of 50 meters of fabric at a time. And there's only so much interest from the, the fabric manufacturer to produce those small runs. Um, it, it takes them a lot of time to set up the, the knitting loom and whatnot. And once they, they turn it on, if they turn it off straight away, it's still going to make 50, at least sort of 50 meters of, of um, fabric. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's not very beneficial for them to do any, any trial runs. It's really only just to get your business. So there's only a, a very limited time that uh, they'll, they'll do trial runs until they say, I'm done doing trial runs because this costs us money and they're not getting any money out of you. Right. So um, even if you offer to pay for the trial run, it's still not, there's no cost benefit for them to do it. So they, they say, look, we'll do a few trials for you. Then you have to produce bulk. So the Kickstarter was to enable me to produce the fabric that I needed and to produce it in a bulk quantity that I needed to, to, to do it in to actually get the, the fabric made. Um, so the fabric's being made now. It's made in bulk. So I'll have it sitting there and I can produce the garments whenever I need to in whatever quantity I need to to produce them in. Um, and that's one of the advantages of my new garment manufacturer is that I can produce one 
or I can reduce a thousand, and it's it's no big deal um, either way. Oh, that's great, that, especially with your sizing, because you're going to have so many different sizes between men, women, children. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, I, I won't be offering children sizes just yet. That might okay. that might come down the track, but um, I've offered um, sizes from extra small to five XL as well, because a lot of brands don't offer up that high, but, uh, that that large up to five XL. So that's another niche market that I can take advantage of. The plan is to, because I'll have all of, all of the fabric and all of the um, what you call notions sitting there and available ready to go, the plan is to produce basically 10 or 15% more than the Kickstarter order in every size and color and have that sitting ready to go in the fulfillment warehouses. So that way I have it basically, I should be able to cover the cost of it all. And when I start marketing the products on my e-commerce site, then um, I'll be able to fulfill the, the orders straight away. When they start to sell out, then that will trigger production of some more garments. Talk about that a little bit with uh, you know your relative size of the Kickstarter order versus um, what you need to keep going. You mentioned that it's allowing you to purchase your custom material. Yep. Are you breaking even with your Kickstarter campaign, or is it basically an investment into a larger operation? Or are you even making a little bit of profit on it to where you can feed that back into the business? No, it was the numbers were done to basically break even on producing the bulk fabric and producing the garments. Okay. So that's that's where the numbers were at. So the plan is once I've finished the Kickstarter garments, I will have broken even on the fabric production and the garment production. And then um, the, the excess will be used for producing packaging and, and redoing the website, which I'm in the process of doing at the moment, and that sort of thing. So, But when it's all said and done, I'll get $0, um, but the uh, I'll have the fabric in bulk ready to go, and every order after that should be clear profit. Well, not, not clear profit, but um, uh, over the manufacturing cost, it'll be, it'll be profit. Right. No, that's yeah. great. I imagine that as you're going through this process, you've probably looked at various fulfillment methods. Like you said, you've got places around the world to fulfill for Kickstarter. Now yep. your um, your full time fulfillment options. Have you looked at Amazon at all, or are you know you know you're going to focus on your rolling your own e commerce store? I've kind of looked at Amazon. It's not um it's not it's kind of a big behemoth that I it's like a bear that I don't really want to poke at the moment. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a lot of uh, information out there about how best to sell and market on Amazon, but I haven't read any of it, and it's just like it's something that I I just don't have time to do at the moment. But I do. I have done a lot of reading about my own marketing and I'm learning about um, all of that sort of side of things. So at the moment, I'm a lot more comfortable just running my own marketing campaigns and selling on my, directing traffic to my own e-commerce store. Having said that, um, it's maybe later in the year, I'll, I'll look at Amazon as well. But um, at this point, it'll just be my own store and I'm looking at the, to employ some sales reps and looking for distribution partners. So... Yeah, and some guests that we've had on the show had have really great luck actually with employing commission-only sales rep that represent similar products. So they already have those types of connections in the industry, and they would just be taking on your line. And so in addition to mentioning other people's products whenever they make a visit to a buyer, they would basically drop in yours. Yep, yep. Yeah, so that's that's all stuff that I'm working on at the moment. So before I go into to Amazon and, and that sort of thing, um, I'll be focusing on, on those types of strategies, yeah. It's a lot easier for me to have one sales rep to, to go and sell to various people or one distribution partner who will buy 
100 garments at a time than to sell to 100 different people. Right, absolutely. Myself, yeah. So even though the, the margins will obviously be lower because you're creating you know, middlemen and, and whatnot, it's still the cost of time benefit is still heavily weighed in, in favor of selling 100 at a time than as opposed to one, yeah. Well, Tim, I really appreciate you sharing your story. You know, as we walk through this path with you, you've definitely shared some of the missteps along the way that you've had, some of the struggles, but also some of the huge wins. And I think that's indicative of taking any product to market is that you're going to have to iterate a bit, you know, go back in, uh, a step and forward a step. Yeah, it's a journey. <laughs> Can you share a, a, your parting tip for someone that's kind of in the place that you were before you launched your Kickstarter um, that's still kind of struggling with taking their idea to market? I've got a couple of tips. Um, I won't rabbit on too much, but probably the, the biggest thing for me is um, I'm, I'm not in the, the business to just make profit. I'm in the business to make to benefit more than just myself and more than just my business. And my my strong tip is that if you're just in it for business and just in it for money, then try and integrate something in that in your strategy to benefit someone else. People are more willing, not only for your your business's health, but also for your own sense of well-being and for your own purpose. It definitely pays dividends in more ways than one. People are more willing to contribute to a product or buy a product or help promote your product. Your product is actually doing something good. So my products are all the most environmentally friendly high-performance apparel on the planet. So that's something that people can sort of get behind. You know, it's, it's the most eco-friendly stuff. Why wouldn't you buy it? You know, that sort of thing. Also, my products uh, contribute to um, charities in Australia and in South Africa. So, the, I guess the the tip is, yeah, is that exactly? If people are more are more willing to see to give you money for your products if they know that it's it's going to work for them. It's going to do more than just go in your pocket. And the flip side of that is the reward you get from helping someone in a charity um, is, you know, it's more rewarding than just getting getting the cash. So that's my strong product tip, and I'm, I'm sure that's uh, one of the reasons for the success of the Kickstarter campaign as well, because people were a lot more willing to share it because it was doing something good for the planet and good for, for the, uh, the charity that, that we support. The other tip is split test. So um, with the Facebook marketing we were discussing before, um, I used a program called Ad Espresso. Mm-hmm. Yep, um, familiar with that. You're familiar with it? Yeah. So Ad Espresso has a, a university in there where they teach you how to use the tool and they teach you techniques on how to refine your audience and all that sort of stuff. You get a free 30 days, I think, to sort of test and use the tool. I use the free 30 days to go and do all of the university videos and learn about it. And um, you can, instead of in the Facebook tool, you you can only do one ad at a time. In AdEspresso, you can split test up to about 150 ads at once. And it only takes you about the same amount of time to build that one ad. Mm. So... I found that a really powerful tool for my Facebook marketing. And they also have people who help you refine your ads and give you tips on why things, certain things are working and certain things aren't and what you may do to refine your ads as well. So, yeah, that was a great tool um, and that, that sort of that helped a lot yeah, at Espresso. Tim, thanks a lot for all the tips that you gave us. Um, as people listen to you, I'm sure some of them are cycling, go to the gym, they want to buy some of the gear. Where can they go to make a purchase? Okay, um, you can go to www.com.au, O-O-R-R.com.au. 
Well, Tim, thanks again for coming on the show. It was uh, my pleasure having you on. And thanks again for being so transparent. And I hope to hear from you in six or 12 months down the line. We'd like to have you back on the show and to give us a, a five or 10 minute update about you know what type of progress you've made, especially in the B2C e-com space. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'd like to come back on and um, that'll give me something to uh, some accountability. <laughs> thanks very much, Philip. I hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Tim this week. Here are my three takeaways from the interview. Number one, understand your supply chain. What path do your raw materials take to get to the manufacturer and how is your product made and shipped to your warehouse? If you can learn what entities are involved in your product, you will be in a better position of influencing costs and setting up contingencies when emergencies come up. Number two, build your customer list. Social networks come and go, and in the case of Facebook, reaching your followers organically is getting more and more expensive as the network is flooded with noise. Create your customer list early on when you first start to test the market and develop prototypes for your product. That way, you can reach out to customers directly as your company grows. And number three, find a deeper meaning in your work. It will help push you forward when things get tough, and customers will make a stronger connection with your brand. You don't have to change the world, just your piece of it. To quote Tim, it's more rewarding than getting cash. Of course, if you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com, scroll to the footer, and sign up to the weekly wrap-up. At the end of every week, you'll get my three takeaways for each guest, along with interesting articles, free tools, and inspiring innovations to help you with your own product startup. So join me next week as I speak with Samantha and Elaine from Midas Cup when they talk about creating an all-natural alternative to coffee. So make sure to tune in next week to hear that episode. And again, check out the Product Startup Workshop, our Facebook group that I created for you just to meet and get help from other product founders like yourself. Go to theproductstartup.com slash group or search for the Product Startup Workshop on Facebook. So thanks again for joining me. I hope that you're taking action on developing your products and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end -end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.